This podcast is about the earliest signs of an emerging trafficking empire and the corrupt politicians that profited from it. It is about the decades of abuse of minority communities disguised as public policies. It is about that system that nurtured an uncontrollable monster that continues to birth ultra-violent and merciless reapers. Understanding the war on drugs and its resulting insurgency is critical in understanding the Mexico we know today. This is Demoler. In the last episode, we covered how the opium poppy arrived to Mexico via Chinese immigrants at the end of the 19th century, and how heavy crackdowns on opium disproportionately targeted and displaced Chinese minorities. Their expulsion allowed Mexican traffickers to begin setting up the first wide-scale international smuggling networks, primarily out of Sinaloa and Sonora. Seeing how lucrative the venture was, Mexican officials could not keep their fingers out of the pie and often directly helped the traffickers evade justice. We also discovered how America effectively stifled Mexico's revolutionary narcotics health campaign and strong-armed the country into adopting its punitive measures all over again, effectively putting thousands in prison. In this two-part episode, we're going deep into the origin of the most lucrative drug in Mexico, how it came to get so big, and what authorities did and did not do to squash it. What we know now as marijuana or cannabis was first referred to as pipicincilis, the indigenous Nahuatl word for the most noble princess. Eventually, it was adopted as marijuana, but nobody's really certain where the word came from. We know that the word originated in Mexico, but how and from what? One theory holds that it may have Chinese origins, stemming from the word ma, which was used to describe the hemp plant. The theory suggests that Mexicans would hear Chinese immigrants to Western Mexico refer to the plant in Chinese, ma ren hua, an expression which translated literally means hemp seed flower. Another theory suggests that it came from the Spanish colonial word for oregano, mejorana. Another theory relates to one of its most prominent consumers, soldiers. It suggests that the name derived from the slang term for soldier, Juan, and his female companion, Maria. But it appears that historians and researchers alike cannot agree on one conclusive theory. Regardless, the name stuck. In his book, Homegrown, Marijuana and the Origins of Mexico's War on Drugs, historian Isaac Gumpels tells us that marijuana was introduced to Mexico in 1530 by a Spanish conquistador named Pedro Cuadrado. Fifteen years later, the Spanish crown ordered the sowing of the plant in their new world. For them, its first use was a hemp leaf, used to make clothing, rope, and sails. By the 1770s, the plant was being used in medical religious practices by indigenous herbolarias, or natural healers. However, the Spaniards thought that these traditional healers were using the plant to commune with the devil, or to enter hidden worlds. From here forward, the plant shifted from an industrious fiber to a misinterpreted passage to the underworld. By the late 1800s to the early 1900s, 
Using marijuana was likened to using narcotics, and its use was overwhelmingly believed to cause violence, delirium, and madness in Mexico. Newspaper coverage sensationally portrayed marijuana smokers as furious madmen carrying out heinous crimes. One newspaper article described a man murdering a woman and skinning her corpse under the effect of marijuana. This drug panic made use and abuse in Mexico highly uncommon, yet politicians, authorities, and doctors parroted lies about marijuana-induced murders. In 1886, a Mexican medical student presented a thesis that marijuana should be a standard legal insanity defense. A year later, a doctor claimed that after just smoking one cigarillo, you'd become addicted and live a life of delirium. Few challenged the propaganda, except the very smokers and sellers of it. It was a Mexican revolution that drove thousands of soldiers to use it as a remedy for pain and as a relaxant. Francisco Luis Urquizo, a general in the revolution, called it, quote, the liberating herb, the consolation of the overwhelmed, the sad, and the afflicted, unquote. From there on, marijuana use was generally associated with soldiers, prisoners, criminals, and the poor. But the drug hysteria also hit the barracks and the prisons. Campo cites newspaper articles detailing story after story of soldiers in a violent rage after smoking weed. A soldier driven mad by marijuana attacking his fellow soldiers. A pot-crazed soldier murdering two colleagues and injuring two others. A prisoner stabbing two fellow inmates to death after smoking up. Even after these groups adopted the plant, its users were not many outside of the barracks and the prisons. Benjamin T. Smith writes in his book, The Dope, The Real History of the Mexican Drug Trade, quote, The root of the panic lay not in the level of marijuana's use. Rather, like the roots of most drug panics, they lay in the type of people who use it, unquote. Over time, we've come to believe that references to marijuana within popular culture were celebrations of the drug or signs of its wide use like this famous tune from the Mexican Revolution. La cucaracha before it became a staple at children's parties, was sung by Pancho Villa's troops during the 1910 Mexican Revolution. Journalist Wallace Smith, who spent considerable time embedded with Villa's forces, tells us a different story. La Cucaracha, or the cockroach, was actually a reference to then-president Victoriano Huerta as a drunk and stoned cockroach who could no longer walk. As Smith added, the song wasn't meant to celebrate marijuana. It was meant to mock Huerta and his loyalists. Through this research, I found numerous articles and photos claiming that Villa smoked the plant with his troops. Though first-person accounts of Villa, such as Smith and other sources, affirm that Pancho Villa didn't smoke and didn't even drink at all. Much of what we know from that era about marijuana was informed by sensationalism rather than actual history. Instead, the narrative that Mexicans were marijuana fiends was also rooted in American propaganda. 
At that time, much of the media suggested that marijuana was overwhelmingly smoked in Mexico and inextricably connected to our identity. Newspapers in the U.S. published headlines like Evil Mexican plants that drive you insane or Is the Mexican nation locoed by a peculiar weed? It drove up the fear that south of the U.S. border, a new threat was looming. And in doing so, it drove America's own hysteria about the drug. Like in this 1936 American propaganda film called Reefer Madness. These high school boys and girls are having a hop at the local soda fountain. Innocently, they dance. Innocent of a new and deadly menace lurking behind closed doors. Marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. In this film, you will see the ease with which this vicious plant can be grown in your neighbor's yard, rolled into harmless-looking cigarettes, hidden in an innocent shoe or watch case. If you want a good smoke, try one of these. You will meet Bill, who once took pride in his strong will as he takes the first step toward enslavement. America was entering its own drug panic, and it would use Mexico's propaganda campaign as a blueprint for how Americans would handle theirs. As Campos writes, the U.S. government and press first heard about the so-called reefer madness from Mexican sources. And similar to opium control, Mexico's marijuana regulation began far ahead of the U.S. In 1917, Mexico's new constitution created the Department of Public Sanitation and gave it unprecedented powers to legislate over substances that, quote, poison or degenerate the race. By 1920, the plan was banned nationwide, 17 years before similar legislation was introduced and passed in the U.S. with the U.S. Marijuana Tax Act. These bans made Mexico one of the first countries in the world to outlaw the production, marketing, and consumption of the plant. The idea that the U.S. began its war on drugs ahead of its neighbors is another distorted misconception about drug prohibition in the early 1900s. The following is a passage from Pagampo's book. Quote, The problem is not that historians have looked deeply at the origins of drug prohibition in Latin America and gotten it all wrong. The problem is that historians simply have not looked deeply at the origins of drug prohibition in Latin America. Not a single monograph exists, for example, on the birth of these policies in Mexico. This is a remarkable fact given the tremendous political, social, and economic costs that the war on drugs have produced in that country over the last century. Without prohibition, there is no black market. And without a black market, there are no narco-traffickers to demonize, no illicit drug users to incarcerate, and no national security threat to declare." Unquote. Clearing the record is important. It helps us to understand where these policies originated and their initial motivations. But despite the mass propaganda campaigns around regulating these drugs of the degenerates, there were prominent voices seeking sensible laws. As I discussed in episode one, Dr. Leopoldo Salazar Vinegra, who introduced state-run opium dispensaries, was a vocal oppositionist of the supposed marijuana madness. But Salazar Vinegra was an outcast, both for his eccentric behaviors 
and unconventional approaches to scientific studies. Salazar Viniegra was known to give unsuspecting medical colleagues marijuana-laced cigarettes to test whether the drug did in fact cause madness or violence. Well, good thing it didn't. He concluded that regardless of the class, education, or age, marijuana did little except dry the lips, redden the eyes, and give people the munchies. In 1938, a year after the U.S. passed its Marijuana Tax Act, Salazar Viniegra wrote a paper titled The Myth of Marijuana. He argued that the notion that smoking marijuana caused madness and violence were myths propagated by a sensationalist press and drug enforcement authorities in the U.S. He argued that this propaganda upheld harmful policies that failed to address addiction and put thousands in prison. Instead, he advocated for the medical use of marijuana and treating drug addiction as a public health problem. But as we heard from episode one, revolutionary approaches to handling any sort of drug rehabilitation were shut down before they made any significant shift. And what happens when tougher measures are implemented? An illicit market is formed. The 1960s marijuana boom was something likened to that of an oil boom. And as an oil boom, there was a rush for many to get involved. In less than a decade, trafficking marijuana turned from a small, localized business to a transnational, multi-billion dollar business. It was outlaw capitalism, and it recruited hundreds more farmers and distributors. While the marijuana panic was still in full gear in Mexico, Americans in the 1960s hippie counterculture began adopting it as a plan of its movement. In 1962, a little over 1% of Americans had tried it. By 1978, 60% of the country's youth population had smoked it. The use of cocaine and heroin was also soaring. Middle-class Mexican hippies also began adopting the subculture, joining foreigners on their pilgrimage to a summer of love. And Mexico became the grand supplier. Not only were Americans receiving the Mexican product on their U.S. soil through border smuggling operations, but hippie Americans were also traveling and vacationing in Mexico for their reefer madness. Many of them even opted to move to the country. Mexico became the cheap Disneyland for drugs, booze, sex, and vices for American risk-takers. Many of them flocked to resort towns like Mazatlán, Puerto Vallarta, and Acapulco. American prospective traffickers also began connecting with local fixers to buy up marijuana and smuggle it up north. And this boom also became a godsend for Mexican growers, who could earn over four times in six months of cultivation what they previously earned in a year. It was a no-brainer. There was an overwhelming demand and endless supply. Until the 1960s, marijuana cultivation was linked to certain villages and big cities. But that quickly changed. Ten years later, there were plantations across the country. The appetite for the plant became so vast that Sinaloa growers could not keep up with the demand. Growers then expanded to Durango, Jalisco, Oaxaca, and Guerrero. According to DEA officials from San Diego, 95% of the marijuana introduced to the U.S. was coming from Mexico. And as the Turkish-French heroin route was drying up, Mexico began taking up a large share of the heroin market too. In 1969, Mexico was providing 15% of U.S. heroin. 
Six years later, it had consolidated 90% of the market. Like a pendulum, the more police increase their vigilance and focus on the practice, the more smugglers and traffickers up their game. Stronger border protections and the introduction of sniffing dogs drove smuggling from the ground to the air. According to Benjamin T. Smith, thanks to the Vietnam War, experienced pilots were also not difficult to source for American smugglers and their accomplices. The planes were far more difficult to detect anyhow. By 1975 to 1977, more weed smuggling planes crashed than were actually seized. The smugglers also innovated their packaging methods. They started to soak their marijuana in a sugar solution or in soda pop to mask the scent. They'd then box it in one kilo blocks, compress it with a hydraulic jet, and wrap it in cellophane. These weed blocks could now be stashed in secret compartments in their vehicles or planes. Despite the booming economy, not all opium kingpins and queens adopted the new marijuana business. So new trafficking groups emerged, some of which were based in the hippie circles of Mazatlan and Puerto Vallarta. The more crowded the market became, the more competition increased. Now, there was also a demand for quality weed. Certain cultivators began losing the market share since their weed was too dark or too dry. The competition eventually created the prime strain, one that was seedless. By the end of the 1960s, it had become the gold standard, even beating the previously highly regarded strain known as Acapulco Gold. By the end of the 60s, it was selling for four times the price of regular weed. But the massive boom in marijuana trafficking also began to shift the arena in which the illicit business operated. Many of the unwritten codes that allowed the business to coexist within societies and keep the violence relatively low were broken. For Luis Astorga, that change in order happened after the chief of the judicial police in Sinaloa was murdered in 1969. The older generation of traffickers blamed the new school, who they accused of not following the rules of the game. Up until that point, there was a silent agreement that traffickers would not challenge the authority or hierarchy of the police. Traffickers respected the badge, and the authorities respected the business. But the new generation of emerging traffickers was far bolder. Following the murder of the Sinaloa police chief, during the 1970s, authorities began weeding the bottom of the barrel traffickers those who had very little or no connections, and a class of larger narco-traffickers began dominating the area. Among them is Pedro Aviles Perez, known as El León de la Sierra, or the Lion of the Sierra. He became the pioneer of marijuana and heroin smuggling to the United States, and the first Mexican to traffic cocaine from South America to the U.S. He was partners with American Max Cosman, known as the Opium King, Aviles Perez was credited for turning the smuggling of marijuana into a university for future mega kingpins, including judicial police officer and Guadalajara cartel founder Miguel Ángel Félix Gallardo. It was Aviles Perez, according to U.S. agents, that grouped scattered smugglers into a collective syndicate, building what later became known as the Federation. He established the Amazon for heroin and marijuana smugglers, 
with a series of narcotics warehouses in the town of San Luis Rio Colorado in Sonora. Not only did Aviles Perez house the product in a safer underground storage compound, but he also provided contacts and connections. Connections which included access to federal police protection in exchange for bribes. He was also the first to expand trafficking to the skies on a massive scale, decades ahead of Amado Carrillo Fuentes, the famous Lord of the Skies. He trafficked with the help of Ernesto Fonseca Carrillo in Sinaloa, Jaime Herrera Nevares in Durango, and Miguel Urias Uriarte in Sonora. The scale of his operations caught the eyes of law enforcement north of the border. In 1973, in a joint operation, the American and Mexican authorities launched Operation Cactus to raid Aviles Perez's compound. The raid turned into a firefight, but they eventually gained entry and seized 24 tons of marijuana hidden away. Two weeks later, they discovered another 45 tons hidden in safe houses across the town and ended up seizing 39 airplanes, becoming the biggest bust in Mexican history during that time. After the raid, he put a $10,000 bounty on the head of any DEA agent and ordered the murder of the Attorney General of Sonora and the incarceration of the Chief of the Federal Judicial Police, the PJF, of San Luis Rio Colorado. The DEA responded by offering a $10,001 bounty on his head. Perez Aviles then fled to Sinaloa. Records say that he was on the run, but he was actually living comfortably in Culiacán, Sinaloa. In 1978, he was lured by a crooked PJF officer in Culiacán to negotiate a payoff. It was an ambush. He was riddled by federal bullets, and the crooked cops still collected Aviles Perez's payoff money, along with the $10,001 bounty. The PJF closed the case as a shootout. I will cover the details of his death further when we cover the shady underworld of the PJF, one of Mexico's most corrupt band of cops. Following his death, the future godfather of trafficking, Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo, the founder of the Guadalajara cartel, took his place. But more on this later. Trafficking from Mexico to the U.S. was getting too big too quickly. Two months after newly elected U.S. President Richard Nixon took office in 1969, he established the Special Presidential Task Force relating to narcotics, marijuana, and dangerous drugs. His aim? To tackle public enemy number one. By early June of that year, the task force produced a report stating that Mexico was the primary supplier of marijuana to the U.S as well as large amounts of other drugs, including heroin. The task force recommended that the U.S. launch a concerted frontal attack on the legal importation of those vices. That same month, Nixon went south to persuade Mexico to spray marijuana and opium crops with herbicide. But fearful of what Agent Orange had done in Vietnam, the Mexicans rejected the idea. In September, the Nixon administration responded to Mexico's rebuke with Operation Intercept to stem the flow of marijuana. The U.S. never warned Mexico of the impeding operation until it was launched. As part of the operation, thousands of fresh U.S. Customs and Border Protection agents were deployed along the 2,000-mile border. The agents were tasked with assessing 100% 
of all vehicles and people crossing the border. The operation was strategically timed for the September marijuana harvest. The American supply was already falling short of the demand, and the border closure was intended to intensify that shortage. The three-week operation resulted in a near shutdown of all traffic across the border. Prior to the operation, border agents relied on a working system that afforded them one minute on average per vehicle crossing the border. Now, this quota was increased to an average of two or three minutes per vehicle, enough to cause a nearly standstill of all traffic, but hardly enough for a thorough search. U.S. newspapers dubbed it the largest peacetime search and seizure operation in history. Faced with stringent checks, Mexican distributors began changing smuggling methods. They began to enter through fences along remote mountain trails or across barren, desolate flatlands near the border. Smuggling by plane also increased despite the U.S. nearly installed FAA radar equipment. The smugglers continued using techniques mastered by Aviles Perez's aerial crews. On most nights, the agents estimated, at least 10 planes made it across the border. They would fly low and slow and land in deserted airstrips or in brush-covered desert areas. Two weeks into the border crackdown, the U.S. Bureau of the Budget called the task force report a grossly inadequate basis for presidential decision and warned that its recommendations were based on dubious claims. According to the Bureau of the Budget, the task force report failed to account for the potential social unrest in Mexico and was attempting to punish them for growing a crop that accounted for only 9% of total exports and provided individual farmers almost 40 times the income that any legitimate crop could provide. The Bureau also disagreed with the task force recommendation that the president focus his policy on the fight against marijuana rather than hard drugs like heroin or LSD. Despite studies showing that resources aimed at hard drugs were about 100 times as effective as equal resources used against marijuana, and while the operation momentarily decreased marijuana supply to the U.S., it unintentionally pushed users to other drugs. A college student interviewed by the New York Times that month stated, I really didn't want to try LSD before, she added, but there's no grass around. So when somebody offered me some LSD, I figured, what the hell? I didn't freak out or anything, so I've been tripping ever since. According to the 1972 Consumers Union report on licit and illicit drugs, another unintended consequence of the temporary marijuana shortage was the increase of highly potent marijuana from Vietnam. The report stated that soldiers in Vietnam would mail it home through GI channels, or many returning veterans would simply bring it back in their troop ship. San Francisco residents reported seeing spikes in the Vietnamese weed flooding the streets after every returning ship docked. Despite it being so evident, there were not many prosecutions against returning veterans. Perhaps, as the report writes, because officials did not welcome the political repercussions which might follow the large-scale criminal prosecution of veterans freshly returned from war. The operation had massively deteriorated relations between the U.S. and Mexico, and had not even managed to decrease the drug use at home. But the operation wasn't a total failure for the Americans. 
By mid-October, Intercept was replaced by a new bilateral anti-drug agreement called Operation Cooperation. Both countries agreed to collaborate on developing a shared strategy to reduce narcotics production within Mexico and its cross-border movement. As a result, Mexico committed to dedicating more resources to a concerted drug eradication and enforcement policy, and U.S. agents were allowed to operate on Mexican soil. The operation was more or less another pressured bilateral agreement backed by the threat of another border closure. It strong-armed Mexico into compliance, all while using the border as a bargaining chip. Gordon Liddy, a senior advisor in the Department of Treasury, called it a quote, an exercise in international extortion, pure, simple, and effective, designed to bend Mexico to our will, unquote. In 1971, drug offense penalties intensified in Mexico. Sentences jumped to 15 years and bail would no longer be an option. Lands on which drugs were cultivated were seized by the government. But while many were ushered into prison cells, drug barons transformed only to become smarter and stronger. For being such a menace, not a single death on record can be attributed to a marijuana overdose or its chronic use, contrast to alcohol or opiates. But regardless of the seemingly harmless properties, it was recognized as one of the worst vices, one that triggered billions of dollars worth in operations, dozens of eradication campaigns, and countless prison sentences. As historians write, it's not the drugs themselves that ravage countless communities. It is the drug policy that was the root and source of so much waste and pain. Join us for part two of the rise of marijuana trafficking, where we discuss Operation Condor and dive deep into when the old school trafficking bosses passed the baton to a class of younger, older, and reckless breed. This episode was written by Demoler, post-production by Sharp Spoon Media. My sources for this episode are El Siglo de Drogas by Luis Estorga, Drug Trafficking in Mexico, a First General Assessment by Luis Astorga. Homegrown, Marijuana and the Origins of Mexico's War on Drugs by Isaac Campos. El Cartel de Sinaloa by Diego Enrique Osorno. El Narco by Joan Grillo. The Dope by Benjamin T. Smith. The 1972 Consumers Union Report on Licit and Illicit Drugs by Edward M. Brecher and the editors of Consumer Report Magazine and Operation Intercept, The Perils of Unilateralism by Kate Doyle. <laughs>